From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Tuesday, June the 6th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, China's officially inaugurated its embassy in Honduras following the establishment of bilateral ties in late March. Ukraine denies it's launched its promised counteroffensive against Russia. And millions of Chinese students across the country are taking part in college entrance exams this week. In business, the first Chinese-made cruise ship is now on the water and preparing for sea trials. In sports, the Vegas Golden Knights look dominant in the NHL Stanley Cup Finals. In culture and entertainment, a shopping festival highlights Hainan Province's cultural heritage. Now the day's top stories. China's officially inaugurated its embassy in Honduras following the establishment of diplomatic relations in March. It came after Honduras severed ties with Taiwan. Charles de Ferret Yubop at the Chinese embassy says he looks forward to more extensive exchanges. It's an arduous task with great responsibility to establish an embassy in a country that China had no diplomatic relations with before. It is also an honorable mission. Our significant political mission is to lay the groundwork for China-Honduras relations. We have overcome the obstacles and engaged extensively with the Honduran government and other relevant parties. China's aim is to build consensus and friendship with Honduras. We have made efforts to promote bilateral exchanges and a practical cooperation in economy, trade and culture. Honduran Foreign Minister Eduardo Reyna jointly inaugurated the opening of the embassy in the capital. Reyna held the inauguration as a significant step in advancing relations between the two sides. Well, I think it's a, a very important step after establishing diplomatic relations with China and, and mainly after recognizing the One China policy. 
I think the the possibility of the President Castro maybe visit China is uh, the larger step historically in foreign relations in Honduras, and and it will be very important for us to to deepen this relation with this high-level visit to China. Other guests at the opening ceremony included members of the Honduran government and Congress, as well as representatives of Chinese and Chinese-funded institutions in the Central American country. Honduran President Xiomara Castro has announced a visit to China upon the invitation of Chinese President Xi Jinping. Castro tweeted that the visit will focus on bilateral ties and exchanges on politics, technology, trade and culture. Earlier, Honduran Foreign Minister Enrique Reina announced that both sides would soon begin trade talks and uh, coffee is set to be the first Honduran export to hit the Chinese market. Iran will reportedly reopen its embassy in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday, local time. The newly appointed Iranian ambassador will be uh, at that event. Tensions have been high between the two countries for seven years. The reopening of the embassy seals a China-brokered deal where Tehran and Riyadh agreed to normalize ties. Since the agreement in March, Saudi Arabia has also restored ties with Syria and ramped up a push for peace in Yemen. Iran's named its ambassador to Saudi Arabia as diplomatic relations improve under China's efforts to bring peace to the region. Iranians are hoping it'll bring business opportunities and economic benefits. Rastin Radvar has more from Tehran. Iran's Foreign Minister Amir Abdullahian has announced that Iran has taken the necessary preparations for the official opening of its political and consular representations in Saudi Arabia. Ali Reza Inayati has been introduced as Iran's ambassador to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Previously serving as Iran's ambassador to Kuwait, he is now expected to assume the responsibility of the Islamic Republic of Iran's embassy in Riyadh following the resumption of diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The improvement in ties is great news for many businessmen, including Mohammad Bobai, a nut exporter, to the countries around the Persian Gulf. Reconciliation between Iran and Saudi Arabia can lead to the flourishing of trade and economic cooperation between the two countries. Increased trade, joint investment, industrial and commercial development, as well as cooperation in the oil and gas sectors, will be beneficial for both countries. Continued official visits between the two countries contribute to diplomatic understandings and have the potential to resolve some regional disputes and conflicts, facilitating security cooperation and information exchange between Iran and Saudi Arabia can lead to reduction in regional security threats and enhanced regional security. In Iran's foreign policy, relations with neighboring countries are a priority, despite challenges due to the volume of differences between Tehran and Riyadh after seven years of estrangement. The path of diplomacy and negotiations continues. Murad Yousafi, who is involved in the real estate market in Tehran, hopes that this reclamation will be profitable for his country. In the past, when there were good relations between the two countries, Iran did not achieve significant and tangible economic progress. But this time, we hope that the realization of economic projects will be a priority for the Saudi government. 
In recent years, political problems and disputes between the two countries led to the suspensions of Iranian pilgrims presence in the Hajj pilgrimage. No, it has become possible again for Iranian pilgrims to travel to Saudi Arabia. The Hajj pilgrimage is one of the religious events in the Islamic world that is of great importance to Iranians. With the visit of the head of the Hajj and pilgrimage organization to Saudi Arabia, upon the invitation of the Saudi minister of Hajj and Umrah, Agreements have been made to expedite the affairs to Iranian pilgrims. Rogaye Tahiri is a pilgrim who intends to travel to Saudi Arabia. Pilgrims were the victims of the political disputes between the two countries and were deprived of the chance to be present in Mecca. It is expected that now, as a sign of renewed friendship between the two nations, we will witness better hospitality towards Iranian pilgrims, and the experience of Iranians' presence on the soil of Saudi Arabia will improve. The agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia in March in China to resume diplomatic relations was followed by an official meeting of the foreign ministers of the two countries in Beijing. For the Beijing hour, this is Rustin Radva reporting from Tehran, Iran. Diplomats from China and the United States have held discussions on refining ties and properly managing differences. Chinese Vice Foreign Minister Ma Jiaoshu met senior U.S. officials in Beijing and reiterated China's stance on major issues, including the Taiwan question. Both sides described the talks as constructive and productive. They agreed to maintain communication. The U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Asia and the Pacific Affairs and a senior director of China Affairs at the White House National Security Security Council are visiting China. Coming up, Russian troops are losing ground in Ukraine. D-Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Nine minutes past the hour. Ukraine's refuted Russian claims that a counteroffensive is underway in Bakhmut. Both sides, though, say that Russian troops are losing ground. Stuart Smith reports. The Russian Defense Ministry says the large-scale offensive began on Sunday on five fronts in southern Donetsk, selected for their perceived vulnerability. But ultimately, it claims Ukraine was unsuccessful. Moscow says it killed 300 personnel where the counteroffensive took place and over 400 elsewhere. Ukraine refused to acknowledge if this was part of its long-awaited counteroffensive, but warned about trusting Moscow's reports. In the Russian region of Belgorod, local officials are calling on people to continue evacuating and join the more than 4,000 already in temporary housing as Ukraine-based anti-Kremlin fighters continue to attempt attacks on Russian territory. While Kiev denies its forces are involved in any attacks outside the country, Belgium is asking Ukraine to clarify how weapons it gave to the armed forces appeared in use by the Free Russia Legion and Russian Volunteer Corps, which takes credit for assaults against Belgorod. And that was Stuart Smith reporting from Moscow. 
A senior Ukrainian official is accusing Russia of blowing up a dam near Kherson. The head of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's administration called it an attempt by Moscow to raise the stakes in its attacks. The Russian-installed mayor of the region says water levels in the town immediately adjacent to the breach dam could rise by 12 meters. Ukraine's interior ministry has called for residents of 10 villages to gather essentials and leave, while cautioning against possible disinformation. Fighting between Sudan's army and the paramilitary RSF has intensified after a ceasefire deal expired. Relentless fighting in and around Khartoum has forced many students to flee to safer parts of the country to continue their studies. Dedicated teachers are trying to make sure the unrest doesn't affect the students too much. Naba Mohideen has more. The disruptive reality of the raging conflict in the Sudanese capital students are hundreds of kilometers from home in a camp for the displaced trying to prepare for their upcoming exams the teachers in al jazeera state gather books close unorganized classes so that the youngsters won't miss this important milestone in their education we've started with social and psychological support then we launched campaigns for logistic support the intermediate students are now able to continue the academic year despite the accumulating challenges we're facing in the camps it's important to minimize the impact of the conflict for the students at least we've organized the classes and the state shall allow them to sit in the local centers for the exams it's a priority for teachers to support students. But the teachers say the students are hardly coping with their new classes. As well as the classes for exam preparation, the teachers are holding support sessions for the students so they can cope with the new situation and the environment. Families of the students are praising the teachers for this support. <laughs> This is a great initiative. Our kids have been through a very difficult situation, and it's hard for them to understand this reality. It's a good chance for them to proceed with their education as well as mentally accept this situation. The fighting in Khartoum is impacting millions of people every day. Only a comprehensive resolution of this crisis can put Sudan back on the right track and allow these students to return to the schools they fled. That was Nabat Mohideen reporting. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the plan to stop migrants arriving in small boats has reduced crossings to the UK from France by 20% this year. He touted the latest migration figures as indicating that his plan is working and pledged to make sure that a new law is passed in Parliament. Our approach is working. For the first time, crossings are down by 20%, but we are not complacent. This won't be solved overnight and people will continue to come this summer, which is why it is so important that we change the law. My policy is very simple. It is this country and your government who should decide who comes here and not 
criminal gangs. Figures from the Home Office show the UK's detected 7,600 people crossing the English Channel so far this year. That's down from almost 10,000 last June. Uh, Sunak made cracking down on migrant boats, uh, migrant boat crossings, uh, or migrant boats crossing the Channel, one of his top priorities after taking over as British Prime Minister in October last year. On Monday, Sunak announced that his government will house around 1,000 asylum seekers on moored barges within the next two weeks. California is investigating whether Florida's governor is involved in the arrival of 16 migrants in Sacramento on a private jet. Uh, they were left on the doorstep of a church without any prior notice. Attorney General uh, Rob Bonta says uh, that they've, uh, they're trying to determine whether there was criminal or civil liability for those who arranged the flight. Tony Waterman has more. According to officials, these Venezuelan and Colombian migrants were taken from El Paso, Texas to New Mexico, then flown by private jet to Sacramento, where they were left in front of a Roman Catholic church on Friday night with not much more than the clothes on their backs. Community organizers have told local media that the migrants were approached outside of a detention center in El Paso and promised help in securing jobs. But it appears that some of them, at least, had no idea what they were agreeing to one organizer telling AP that the migrants were lied to and intentionally deceived. Attorney General Bonta has suggested that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis may be behind the trip, saying that the migrants were carrying documents that appeared to have been issued by the state of Florida. It's very strange. At best, it's potentially illegal. It could violate criminal laws. It could violate civil laws. So we're continuing our investigation. We'll get to the bottom of that. We want accountability. Uh, we want the end to this morally bankrupt practice uh, that uh, hurts people, treats them as pawns. DeSantis is now running for the White House, and he's been campaigning on tougher immigration policies, promising to reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy and to complete the border wall. As for these migrants caught in the crosshairs of American politics, they are receiving support in California. Governor Newsom says they will be treated with respect and dignity and receive help in getting to their intended destination. That was Tony Waterman reporting. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, college entrance exams are underway in China this week. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China, and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports, and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China and the rest of the world. 17 minutes past the hour. Millions of students across China are taking part in the annual college entrance examinations this week. Well, this year, the government's approved 21 new majors in colleges across the country, including future robotics, education for children with autism, and barrier-free management. This round of adjustments aimed at enabling universities to cultivate more talent in areas that are in urgent need. And Zheng Tao has more. The number of college entrance examination candidates is expected to reach a historic high of 12.9 million this year. They now have more options, as authorities have approved more majors for undergraduate programs. Majors related to emerging industries, such as artificial intelligence and big data, are the hot ones. Take future robotics, for instance. The newly set-up major is under a new category in engineering in Southeast University. 
Director Ying Guodong of the university's academic affairs office says the move is set to cultivate innovative talents with a more detailed and specific major. Future robotics is a typical interdisciplinary major where students have three mentors: an introductory mentor, an academic mentor, and an enterprise mentor. And their bachelor, master, and doctoral curriculums. China is optimizing its education system to better serve economic and social development. According to the Ministry of Education, the country will adjust around 20 percent of majors in colleges by the end of 2025. The announcement is bound to have a huge impact on existing college majors, tilting towards practical knowledge rather than a broad base of study. Also this year, Hainan University has released a curriculum abstract for the new rural management major, which includes 80% of the curriculum on professional knowledge. Yu Xudong is the head of the College of Agriculture and Rural Affairs at Hainan University. He says the arrangement allows students to gain more professional knowledge, which is urgently needed on the front line. We established it. We not only teach students the basics, but also send them to rural areas to work and handle rural affairs for a period of time. We've also introduced courses on planting, breeding, smart agriculture, ecological protection, and farm machinery. To better cultivate talent, the university has rolled out a comprehensive plan covering training courses for enterprises and governmental institutes in rural areas. The educating method is more flexible and complex. Compared to other majors in the school, but the director also acknowledges the difficulties in carrying out the teaching activities. I think this major is one of the toughest courses because it involves a lot of people, places, and content. For example, there are 11 different curricula for a single subject in this major, which is really unusual. Director Shun Binqi of the 21st Century Education Research Institute says that setting up new majors relies on the university's educational resources. Universities shouldn't just randomly create new majors. The decision should be based on input from the academic committee of the university, and decision makers should take into account the university's circumstances. These are essential requirements for establishing successful majors. The director says it is difficult for colleges to timely identify what society needs, and it is a daunting task for decision makers. We need to focus more on how we teach students. It's really important to help them develop their innovative ability. If we only teach them facts and information, the knowledge will soon be out of date. If the students don't have the ability to learn and adapt, it will be tough for them to succeed in society. The director also suggests universities should have more autonomy in running their schools, so they can be more flexible in adjusting the majors. For the Beijing Hour, this is Jiang Tao. Hundreds of women business leaders gathered in Beijing on Monday for the 2023 BRICS Women's Leadership Forum. Li Yunxi reports on the progress of gender equality in the five largest developing economies and how digital technologies have empowered women in their career choices. Since the founding of the BRICS Women's Business Alliance in 2020. Members of the alliance have finally met each other in person for the first time. One of the highlights from the forum is the updated report on women's development. 
Overall, women's rights to education and access to health services have seen significant progress in the BRICS countries, but female participation rates in labor experienced a setback during the pandemic, and the uneven division of family responsibilities has also made women more susceptible than men to mental health issues during the difficult time. There are also geographical disparities among the five countries. For every 10,000 mothers, Brazil offers 74 nursing and midwifery personnel, far above the global average of 39.5. In the South African government, women had taken exactly half of the seats in the cabinet in 2019. The digital economy now accounts for nearly 40% of China's GDP, and the massive market has created 57 million jobs for women in the country. Lebohan Zulu is the rotating chairperson of the BRICS Women's Business Alliance. She says the forum offers a platform for countries to draw strengths from each other to better promote gender equality. The BRICS cooperation presents an opportunity for us to leverage each other's strengths. So, where South Africa is doing very well, what lessons are there for China? Where China is doing very well, what lessons are there for South Africa? And how do we co- cooperate、uh, in terms of knowledge exchanges?、Um, Uh, exposing practices, you know,、um, each other's sharing each other's best practices. Digital technologies have been a strong driving force in empowering women's career development in the BRICS countries, especially in China. Vice President Rosa Yan of Deloitte China explains women's strength in the emerging professions. She also expects the number of female jobs in China's digital sector to more than double in two years. In industries like e-commerce and content creation, women can better benefit from the advantage in communication and creativity. It's projected that by 2025, the number of female entrepreneurs and employees in China's digital economy will reach 120 million. Female entrepreneurs have also played a bigger role in the transformation of traditional industries. Dr. Aisha Nasrin is leading the medical service delivery of Apollo Telehealth Services. One of the largest telemedicine service providers in India, as overall health services for women improve and maternal fertility rates drop, she says the growing number of medical facilities run by women is better catering to their own demand. You know, it's being led by the women, but also because the women, because they are very adaptive, they have adopted very quickly to the technology that is available, which is making us, you know, make the healthcare services accessible. To the the most difficult parts and to the more to people who are the farthest. Digital technologies have even helped women break into industries that used to be dominated by men. Kristina Romanovskaya is the CEO of Lazarevskoye Breeding Farm, an award-winning agricultural business in Russia, known for its creative solutions in digital transformation. She says it's not easy for women to develop a career in this industry, but digital technologies have made a difference. I I don't want that women、uh, work in agriculture because it's very hard.、Uh, so、um, digitalization of their works help them、uh, to work in agriculture um, because um, digitalization make control of the company easier. In next week. The group of women business leaders will visit Hangzhou and Zhuhai to bring their inspirations to more people. That, regardless of their gender and other born attributes, they should be encouraged to pursue their passion against social stereotypes. For the Beijing Hour, this is Li Yunqi. 
United Nations climate chief says the world needs to phase out fossil fuels if it wants to curb global warming. However, UN Climate Change Executive Secretary Simon Steele uh, couldn't say whether the issue will be on the agenda at this year's climate talks. And the question of the phase down or phasing out of fossil fuels, we know is a central element in terms of reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions and getting us onto that path for 1.5. So the opportunity to have this on the agenda um, is there. But more importantly, how does the process and how do we as the global actors within that respond to it? Scientists have said about 98% of the carbon dioxide human industrial activity put in the air in 2022 was from burning coal, oil, and natural gas. Ahead of the COP28 climate talks, representatives from nearly 200 countries gathered in Bonn, Germany, to discuss ways to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The climate talks will be in Dubai later this year, with Abu Dhabi National Oil Company CEO Sultan Al Jaber heading the negotiations. The Brazilian government's unveiled its plan for eliminating deforestation in the Amazon by 2030 as part of a global pact to protect the environment. President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva says the action plan for the prevention and control of deforestation in the Amazon shows Brazil's determination to tackle the problem. Mainly because of the Amazon rainforest, Brazil is largely responsible for the world's climate balance. That's why stopping deforestation in the Amazon is also a way of reducing global warming. I know the size of the challenge of ending deforestation by 2030, but this is a challenge we're determined to achieve with the measures we announced today. The plan to tackle deforestation focuses on using strengthened law enforcement against environmental crimes and other measures in the world's largest tropical rainforest. Under former President Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil joined a 2021 pact with more than 140 countries to end deforestation globally by 2030. President De Silva made the pact a centerpiece of his environmental policy when he assumed office back in January. At 28 past the hour, Beijing's at 22 degrees overnight. It's rain tomorrow, turning to sunny later on with the high of 36. Chongqing's at 20 this evening, then cloudy and 29. Lass is down to 12 degrees. Sunny and 24 tomorrow. Hong Kong's at 27 this evening, uh, then uh, thunder showers and 31 degrees. Elsewhere, Tokyo 17. It's overcast and 27 on Wednesday. Islamabad's down to 18, then a light rain, turning to sunny and 36. Bangkok's at 28 overnight, then a light rain and 35. In Africa, Nairobi's getting a light rain, turning to sunny and 27 Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, China's officially inaugurated its embassy in Honduras following the establishment of bilateral ties in late March. Ukraine denies it's launched its promised counteroffensive against Russia. And millions of Chinese students across the country are taking part in college entrance exams this week. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, 60 minutes of comprehensive news, your window on China and the world. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. 
This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Tuesday. Still to come. In business, the first Chinese-made cruise ship is now on the water and preparing for sea trials. In sports, the Vegas Golden Knights look dominant in the NHL Stanley Cup Finals. In culture and entertainment, a shopping festival highlights Hainan Province's cultural heritage. To contact us, you can email beijinghour at cri.com.cn. Now checking the day's headlines, here's Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. China says its relations with Honduras are off to a good start since the country's established diplomatic ties in March. A foreign ministry spokesperson says it shows the One China principle has the overwhelming support of the international community and represents the prevailing trend of the world. China has opened its embassy in the Central American country. The spokesperson says China will assist Honduras in setting up its embassy in Beijing. Honduras severed ties with the Taiwan region before engaging with Beijing. The air forces of China and Russia have conducted a sixth joint aero strategic patrol. The patrol covers airspace over the waters of the Sea of Japan and East China Sea. The Chinese Defense Ministry says the operation is part of the China-Russia annual military cooperation schedule. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency has refuted criticism that the UN nuclear watchdog has lowered its standards in the Iran nuclear probe. Speaking from Vienna, IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi says the agency has never watered down its standards when conducting its investigation in Iran. We have been uh, strict, technically impartial, uh, as I like to say, um, very firm, fair but firm. So we don't, we are not in the in business of watering down or politically adapting anything. The remarks come after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accused the IAEA of capitulating to Iranian pressure. Netanyahu on Sunday slammed the agency as ineffective after release of his report on the investigation into uranium particles discovered at undisclosed Iranian locations. Meantime, Grossi reiterated his stance from the report he issued last week that the explanation given on the uranium particles was plausible. Tokyo Electric Electric Power Company says a rockfish captured in the harbor near the Fukushima nuclear power plant has tested highly radioactive. The fish registered a radiation level 180 times higher than the standard mandated by the Japanese Food Sanitation Act. Kyoto News reports that cesium was detected in the fish, which was caught in an area where wastewater water from the crippled nuclear facility was flowing into the harbor. TAPCO says it is implementing measures to prevent fish from leaving the port. Meanwhile, officials elsewhere are demanding that Japan immediately halt its plans to dump the contaminated water into the sea. Lawmakers from the northern Mariana Islands expressed their concerns, calling it a direct threat to to the lives of residents who heavily rely on marine resources. The owner of the company that took over McDonald's restaurants in Russia says the new chain has grown faster than forecast in its first year. Alexander Gover says Vukusno Tochka, or Tasty and That's It, is reopening restaurants slightly faster than planned and serves about 2 million people a day.
The business activity we have created is not going anywhere. We are working confidently with the team. We did not come to make money for six months or a year. We are here for the long haul. So we will build business processes that will work while we are here. McDonald's has closed its Russian restaurants soon after Russia began what it calls a special military operation in Ukraine in February last year before eventually selling. New licensee Alexander Gover marked the first anniversary of Vkusno Tochka on Monday and says he hopes to have more than 900 restaurants by the end of the year. A top official says the European Union is pushing online platforms such as Google and Meta to label AI-generated content. EU Commission Vice President Vera Jourova says the purpose is to fight false information. We want the platforms to label the production of AI in the way which the normal user, who is also distracted by many different things, but normal user will clearly see that this is not the text uh, or the visual uh, produced, uh, developed, created by real people. This is the robot speaking. So for us, uh, it's, it's important that there is, a, there is a speed, so immediate labeling and clarity. Google, Meta and TikTok are among those that signed up to a voluntary code of practice regarding artificial intelligence. Eurova urged the companies to start labeling immediately before the codes of a voluntary commitment becomes a legal obligation. U.S. poet laureate Adaliman has written a poem that will fly to Jupiter's moon Europa aboard NASA's Europa Clipper mission. Liman's ode to dedicated to Europa was unveiled at a ceremony as NASA prepares for the years-long journey to the icy moon. She says her poem, In Praise of Mystery, a poem of Europa, is about curiosity and wonder glancing at both space and back to Earth. It's so incredible that it's traveling and will arrive at the second moon of Jupiter six years from now. To think about all that, that's incredible. And to think about how many times we point to the night sky and think about wonder and awe. But I also wanted to point back to the Earth. And I think the biggest part of the poem is that it unites those two things. It unites both space and this incredible planet that we live on. Limon's seven-stanza poem will be engraved in her handwriting on the exterior of the Europa Clipper spacecraft. NASA expects to launch the mission in October 2024 to study the ocean of water beneath Europa's crust. The spacecraft will travel 2.6 billion kilometers to eventually orbit Jupiter, where it will make nearly 50 flybys of Europa. Thank you very much. That was Tianyu with your headline update. This is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, the first Chinese-made cruise ship is now on the water and getting ready for sea trials. Want to learn about world affairs in a more laid-back and accessible manner? Join insiders, experts, and analysts in the casual setting of the chat lounge to hear their personal experiences and opinions on major events and hot issues. Subscribe to Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thirty-eight past the hour now. Turning to business, and here is Sui. Thanks, Shane. Stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished lower today. Timothy Pope has more. 
Chinese mainland markets looked like uh, they were looking a little bit risk on this morning, uh, but they did lose ground steadily throughout the afternoon. Now, the early optimism and that risk appetite was stoked by some hopes for more policy easing from the Chinese government, but it didn't last, and the Shanghai Composite Index ended 1.2% lower. The Shenzhen component shed 1.6%, and a lot of the uh, the policy easing hopes had surrounded the real estate sector, uh, and that really did help boost stocks early on and limit losses for that sector, at least uh, in the afternoon session. Uh, China Vanka ended the day about seven-tenths of one percent higher. Poly developments closed fractionally higher. Great Wall Motor, uh, the automaker, was also rising uh, and then fell today after posting strong sales growth for May. Total sales volume at the automaker was up 26% year-on-year and that prompted the shares to rise 1.2% before uh, the overall afternoon gloom pulled them down to close uh, two-tenths of 1% lower. And uh, quickly turning to the regulatory front, uh, the China Securities Regulatory Commission uh, says that there's been a jump in the number of Chinese companies applying to list in Hong Kong or even in the US since new regulations came into force at the end of March. Currently, uh, the CSRC says that it's working its way through a queue of more than 40 applicants, uh, most of which are Hong Kong hopefuls, but uh, two of which are aiming for uh, New York's NASDAQ. That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hansen index was a little below flat. In Japan, the Nikkei was up 0.9%. China's first domestic-built cruise ship, Adora Magic City, has then docked in Shanghai after about four years of construction. The ship marks an important step in China's push for technological self-reliance. Wu Bing has more details about the vessel. First, I would like to start with the name. That is very special. The name is Adora Magic City. Some of you may know that Magic City is actually the nickname of Shanghai. So the name itself shows the birthplace of the cruise ship. And uh, the ship is over 300 meters long and over 37 meters wide and has over 25 million components, double the time needed to build an aircraft carrier. And the ship is more than just being large, extremely complex to build compared to other container ships. As a cruise ship, it's also of vital importance to provide passengers a cozy experience on board. For example, if you open the door onto the balcony, the air conditioner will automatically stop uh, because the system assumes that you want to enjoy some of the ocean breeze. And also safety is of vital importance. So on each side, uh, there are 10 safety boats. It actually has the capacity of accommodating up to 300 people each. So even if the worst case scenario happens, the, all the passengers can be evacuated to lifeboats. That was Wu Bin reporting. For more discussions on the undocking of Adora Magic City, Lili Lu spoke to Wang Kun, assistant professor at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Tell us what's the implication uh, this undocking of China's first domestically built cruise ship have for the country's manufacturing industry? Actually, it's a significant milestone for China's manufacturing industry. It shows China's growing technological and manufacturing capabilities. As we know, the cruise ship is far more difficult to build than other types of ships like container ship or dry box ship. So not so many countries have this capability. And also, it shows China can compete with other global players in this manufacturing field. And also, could you elaborate a bit more on the economic significance of the uh, Dora Magic City? 
Yeah, the firstly, I think is uh, very important for the tourism industry uh, because the cruise shipping market is growing and uh, the demand for the cruise ship is uh, global. So if China has this capability to build the cruise ship, it means China can export a lot of these kind of ships to the other countries. So it will definitely contribute to China's mm -hmm. export uh, sector. So I think it is, has a profound impact on China's economy overall. The cruise now is aimed to lead in the cruise 5G market and also beyond. Yeah. I mean, with the possibility once you have 5G connectivity, you can you know, easily introduce other technologies onto the cruise. How do you think technology will aid in the high quality development of the tourism industry? So this technology, 5G, if we equip it on the cruise ship, it has a lot of impact. Firstly, is to enhance the passengers' customer service experience. Like you can enjoy the high-speed internet service on board. The secondly, it will increase the operational efficiencies of the ship because a lot of the device can be enabled by the 5G technology to increase the efficiencies of like navigation, scheduling, and reducing the waiting time and improving the overall uh, ship operations, uh, save energy. And also, uh, it will enhance the safety uh, because a lot of the sensors, a lot of the uh, detectors, they can be better in effect with the 5G technology. So it will reduce uh, safety risks, enhance the safety for the passengers and also for the ship crews. That was Wang Kun, assistant professor at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. The International Air Transport Association says the global air travel industry has well recovered from the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The association released a review on the situation of the global airline industry at the 79th IATA annual general meeting in Istanbul. Director General Willie Walsh said they have strengthened their outlook for the global airline industry this year and predicted increased profitability. Uh, a nice outlook and it's nice to be able to talk about the industry back in profitability. Uh, given you know the horrible times we've gone through over the past few years, it's a, it's a net margin of 1.2 percent, uh, and, and this is very very small. You know we talk about uh, an average of two dollars twenty-five for a passenger carried. Data shows that the global airline industry is expected to generate over 800 billion U.S. dollars this year, up 9.7 percent from the previous year. Tech giant Apple is going all in on the world of mixed reality. The Silicon Valley tech giant made the eagerly anticipated announcement at its annual developers conference. Mark New reports. At Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, CEO Tim Cook pulled out the famous line from the late Apple founder Steve Jobs. But we do have one more thing. He announced Apple's launch into the world of augmented reality. Today, I'm excited to announce an entirely new AR platform with a revolutionary new product. And here it is. It's called Apple Vision Pro, part of a category the company calls spatial computing. The headset is a mixed reality device where images are overlaid while the user maintains vision in the real world. We set the ambitious goal to design an incredibly intuitive input model for spatial computing one that could be used without controllers or additional hardware. Apple Vision Pro relies solely on your eyes, hands, and voice. Icons respond to where one's eyes look. Gestures allow users to select and scroll. 
Competitors have launched spectacles and headsets in the virtual reality and augmented reality space well before Apple, such as Google Glass, MetaQuest, as well as products from hundreds of companies. But when Apple moves into a space, it does so with full force, often devouring the competition. One of those competitors is Chinese company Xreal, which first launched its AR glasses in 2020. Co-founder Peng Jin says he actually welcomes Apple's entry into the extended reality space. Hundreds of millions of people starting to pay attention to what's happening in the AR space. So, you know, from that perspective, I think it's super helpful. It's kind of a, a huge proof point that, you know, the, the biggest tech company in the world, the most successful, is also jumping into the XR space. I think that's a signal for a lot of people and a lot of the skeptics in the media that were starting to say, you know, the metaverse is dead. Known for superlatives at their events, Apple called the product the most advanced personal electronics device ever, noting that it filed more than 5,000 patents to create the device. That's being used to justify its premium price of $3,500. At the event, Apple also introduced a new 15-inch Mac Air laptop, as well as its latest Mac operating system called Sonoma. That was Mark New reporting. Thank you very much. And that was Sui with Business. You're listening to the Beijing Hour coming up in sports. The Vegas Golden Knights look dominant in the NHL Stanley Cup Finals. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. It's 48 past the hour now. Turning to sports, and first of all in the NHL, the Vegas Golden Knights seized control of the Stanley Cup Final with a 7-2 victory over the Florida Panthers and now have a 2-0 series lead. Jonathan Marcheseau scored twice. Aiden Hill continued his stellar play by making 28 saves in goal. Marcheseau had an assist to finish with three points. His 12 postseason goals sets a Golden Knights record with all coming after the first round. In the third period, Golden Knights center Jack Eichel set up Marcheseau to bring the score to 5-1 during his first shift back. Marcheseau praised Eichel's performance after the game. I mean, he's unbelievable, right? I mean, it's not just with... The pockets without the puck, the way it works everywhere on the ice. He's uh, one of those guys that makes everybody look better. And, uh, I mean, he gets a massive hit there, goes in the locker room, first shift back in the third period. He gets on the forecheck, on the body, wins his battle, finds me. I mean, that's the resiliency that we have in that locker room. And it just it's, starts with your top guys. And it just goes right through the, the lineup. Brett Howden scored twice for the Knights, who also got goals from Alec Martinez, Nicholas Roy, and Michael Amadio. Game three is on Thursday in Sunrise, Florida. In tennis, world number four Casper Ruud beat Nicholas Jari in straight sets in the fourth round of the French Open, earning himself a place in the quarterfinals. The 24-year-old made impressive comebacks from deficits in the second and third sets after winning a tense first set tiebreak. The Norwegian will next face Holger Runa, who battled through a grueling five-set match and beat Francisco Carandulo. Runa talked about the strategy that he chose to play with during the game. Yeah, it was tough. Um, you know, it was a super close match, a very long match, a long rallies. And, uh, you know, he played well. He played a very good tournament, so he made it difficult for me. So I had to dig deep, which I did, find solutions. And uh, 
I came a little to the net at the end, and I think that was the key for me to win. Other action, Alexander Zivarev outperformed Gregor Dimitrov in straight sets, advancing to the next round. In women's singles, defending champion Iga Swiatek advanced when uh, Alicia Serenko had to retire because of illness in the first set. Uh, Swiatek's next opponent in the quarterfinals will be Coco Goff, whom she defeated in last year's final. Uh, Swiatek says she'll not think about last year's tournament when playing against Goff. Last year, you know, uh, it was a final, so I think, you know, finals have kind of different rules. Um, sometimes these matches are a little bit different than um, than the other rounds that we played during the tournament because of, you know, the pressure and everything that's going on around. So, um, so you know, this is a totally different year, totally different tournament, and um, and I have to be ready, you know, regardless of what happened last year. Uh, other action, Ons Jabor progressed to the quarterfinals at the clay court major for the first time, defeating Bernarda Pera in straight sets. Uh, the seventh seed is set to face 14th seed Beatrice Adadmaya in the quarterfinals. Spain's Anti-Violence Commission has proposed fines of over 60,000 euros or over 64,000 U.S. dollars and two-year bans from stadiums for each of the four men charged with racism against Real Madrid forward Vinicius Jr. The four people are accused of hanging an effigy of the player by the neck off a bridge in Madrid in January. The commission also proposed fines of 5,000 euros and one-year bans from stadiums for each of the three Valencia fans accused of racially insulting Vinicius during a Spanish La Liga match. Spanish club Valencia had already banned the three fans for life from its stadium. The club was fined 27,000 euros and was punished with the partial closure of Mestalla Stadium for three matches. The Spanish Soccer Federation and the Brazilian Soccer Federation have announced that Spain will host Brazil in a friendly to mark both nations' fight against racism. Lionel Messi's father says that, if possible, his son wants to return to FC Barcelona next season. Jorge Messi made a brief declaration to the media while in Barcelona to meet with Barca president Joan Laporta over the star's possible move back to the club. The Argentine forward left the Spanish club two years ago to join Paris Saint-Germain. The main problem for Barcelona is whether they'll be able to fit Messi into the tight wage ceiling imposed on the club by the Spanish Football League. The club has presented a viability plan to La Liga, but there are still doubts over whether they'll be able to afford the seven-time Ballon d'Or winner. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in culture, a shopping festival highlights Hainan Province's cultural heritage. Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men, Days of Future Past. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 53 past the hour now, and turning to culture and entertainment, here's Tanya. Thank you, Shane. A shopping festival highlighting intangible cultural heritage in Hainan province has provided tourists with a, vari- with, with a rich variety of local culture. The event in Haiko consists of 26 booths displaying intangible cultural heritage with performers providing interactive activities. The efforts have also greatly pleased tourists. Some of the inheritors came here and taught us a lot about Hainan culture. I think it's marvelous. Young people don't pay much attention to intangible culture, so it's fun to occasionally be able to attend such events. 
The activity hopes to increase people's awareness of intangible culture and strengthen the protection of it. The China National Archives of Publications and Culture is now open to the public. It exhibits some of the most valuable collections of traditional Chinese culture. Its headquarters is in Beijing, and it has other branches in Xi'an, Hangzhou, and Guangzhou. Shen Li has more. At the northwood central axis of Beijing. And the foot of Yanshan Mountain is institute that's home to more than 16 million archives, from ancient books, inscriptions, documents to stamps that record Chinese history and civilization. The Wenxin Pavilion, one of the three main venues, houses two precious ancient relics. One is a Tungus Strip translation of Tibetan Buddhist text created in the 13th century. It's the earliest existing printed book. Using the techniques of wooden movable type printing, another one is a copy of the book discovered in Japan a few decades ago. The copy may have been part of Sino-Japanese cultural exchanges in the 13th century. The Beijing archives also include the largest public artwork, a mural measuring 12.7 meters by 6.3 meters, that took artists more than 40 days to complete. It depicts famous Chinese landscapes, including the Greeting Pine, a well-known landmark on the Yellow Mountain in eastern China. Three theme exhibitions show the historical development of Chinese stamps and ancient currency. At the Wenhan Pavilion, there are copies of 26 precious ancient books, including Yongle Canon and Si Ku Quan Shu, or Emperor's Four Treasuries. Among the collections are works translated from Western classics, like the Chinese edition of Thomas Huxley's *Evolution and Ethics*. It was done between 1897 and 1898 by famed Chinese translator Yan Fu. Various versions of the Xinhua Dictionary are also on display. It's so far the best-selling Chinese dictionary and the world's most popular reference work, with 12 editions. And 600 million copies distributed worldwide. The Beijing headquarters are built based on the traditional Chinese courtyard design. The complex consists of Wenxin Pavilion, Wenhua Pavilion, and the Wenhan Pavilion. Besides preserving and passing on culture, experts hope the project will also strengthen Chinese people's cultural confidence, present a strong cultural image, and promote dialogues among the world's civilizations. That was Shen Li reporting. Booming sales of Chinese art at galleries in the French capital show the enduring fascination with Asian art among European art lovers. For centuries, they have been captivated by antique Chinese porcelain, fine art tapestry, and paintings by renowned Chinese artists. Asian art expert Pierre Ansis says Europe is attracted to Chinese art. The craze for Chinese art will not disappear. Every year, art objects leave France, bought by Chinese people. In a few years, there won't be much Chinese art left in France. The remaining objects will mainly be in museums. French families will certainly sell theirs. The market will shift. It will be a Chinese-to-Chinese market rather than anything else. The future for Chinese art is infinite. 
The market for Chinese art and antiques has been rebounding with around 7.4 billion U.S. dollars in global sales. Thank you very much. That's Tian Yu with Culture and Entertainment. We're at 58 past the hour. Beijing down to 22 degrees overnight. So light rain turning to sunny tomorrow with a high of 36. Chongqing's at 20 this evening. Uh, Wednesday is cloudy and 29. Last is down to 12 degrees, followed by sunshine and 24. Hong Kong's at 27 this evening. Tomorrow, thunder showers and 31 degrees. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, China's officially inaugurated its embassy in Honduras following the establishment of bilateral ties in late March. And Ukraine denies it's launched its promised counteroffensive against Russia. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there. A million, a billion, or maybe a gazillion years ago, a giant split open an egg. Then came the lady giant, who made people, and Mr. Curious, the botanist, Mr. Handyman, the baron on the tree. This is our new season of Chinese folk tales, and we will explore the ancient mystical world together. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.